way back in the day, when upstanding citizens wore leisure suits and pants suits and platform shoes, and Jesus people wore tie-dyed t-shirts and bell-bottoms and long hair where, wherever it was possible to grow it, way back in the early 1970s, in other words, we used to sing a song. It was one of those songs that today would be called contemporary or more pejoratively off the wall, but back then was simply called a chorus. In fact, we didn't put songs on the wall in those days when an overhead projector would have been really pretty high-tech gear. Instead, the choruses were memorized. They were etched into our brains. They became the soundtrack of our generation of fundamentalist Pentecostals, pointing us to heaven, to Jesus, to our best selves, and I admit sometimes serving to remind us that we were creatures of flesh and blood and so capable of being stirred by rhythms not typically associated with church. We may not have danced in the aisles, but we sure enough swayed. In the Assemblies of God Church we attended, we'd sing choruses and we'd sing gospel songs and we'd sing hymns and never really thought too much about distinguishing one from the other. This was back before the words praise and worship became a label for a particular form of congregational life. For us, the two words were interchangeable, not combined. Every Sunday and Wednesdays, and sometimes if we were in revival, every day of the week, we praise God. Every Sunday and Wednesdays, and sometimes if we were in revival every day of the week, we worshiped. We really weren't very self-conscious about our practices. We just participated and with a confidence that we knew what we were doing, that it was good. Anyways, we'd sing these choruses. Some were already oldies by then, and others were drifting in with the Jesus people, um, gifts that mitigated the impact of long hair and dirty bare feet on our dressed for success-oriented congregation. And one of them went like this. We are one in the Spirit, we are one in the Lord. We are one in the Spirit, we are one in the Lord. And we pray that all unity may one day be restored. And they'll know we are Christians by our love, by our love. Yes, they'll know we are Christians by our love. All right. For a chorus that celebrates Christian unity, it seems to me that it's got a remarkably somber melody. Uh, there's something haunting, I think, about the tune, sorrowful even. Singing the chorus repeatedly, as was the custom in those days, as it is today, uh, was about as close to chanting as any bunch of Pentecostal believers were likely to get. Indeed, a subsequent verse sounds positively Greek Orthodox. All praise to the Father from whom all things come, and all praise to Christ Jesus, his only Son, and all praise to the Spirit who makes us one. We sang it without accompaniment, like the Mennonites, though it's easy to imagine a cello holding up the bottom, droning a bass line, anchoring our voices in the solidity of the text. We are one in the Spirit, we are one in the Lord. Oh, come on. We are one in the Spirit, we are one in the Lord. And we pray that all unity may one day be restored. And we'll know we are Christians by our love, by our love. Yes, we'll know we are Christians by our love. 
just future reference, we're going to do this a couple more times throughout the sermon, so be ready. The melancholy tomb might seem out of place until we consider our gospel text for today. It's one of those lectionary occasions when we're thrust right into the middle of a story. Jesus and the disciples are gathered for their last meal together. And he's invited Jesus, Judas to go and do what Judas needs to do. The other disciples, God bless them, and innocently assume that Judas is just going out to buy some bread and a few eggs. But John knows, and so we know, what Judas' mission really is. He's going to betray Jesus. John's Jesus is prescient in ways unlike the Jesus of the other Gospels. He, he knows for sure that the end is coming. He knows the time of his glorification has come. And he knows that his glorification involves a cross not an army marching into Jerusalem to seat him on a throne. He knows, in other words, that his end is coming. And so begins his final will and testament, his last words to his disciples. Jesus speaks to his friends. Jesus prays for his friends, and he assures them and comforts them. He is leaving them, and where he's going, they cannot go. His time is near. And so Jesus speaks his last words to his best friends. Little children, I'm with you only a little longer. You will look for me. And as I said to the Jews, so now I say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. I give you a new commandment that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also should love one another. By this, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. And now that haunting melody makes sense. It's, it's funeral music. Something to sing after a loved one is gone in an effort to keep that loved one alive in our hearts, if not on earth, in our community, if not in material form. It's a lighting of the candle against the shadows. Jesus is gone, but this thing we can do. We can proclaim our unity in him. We can pray for that unity to be made real. We can reveal that unity by our love for each other. Jesus was leaving his friends. He was heading for his glorification, his death, and he loved them, and he wanted them to be okay without him. He wanted them to look out for each other. They would be tempted to turn away from each other, to turn on each other. There'd be plenty of room for shaming and words of blame and anger and doubt. His tiny community of friends could well fall apart. It could shatter with his leaving and the events to follow. And so Jesus calls his friends to turn toward each other, to love each other, to look out for each other, to make a place for each other, to treat each other as Christ treated them, sacrificially, gently, compassionately to love each other and so reveal to the world that they really are his disciples. Now, before we get too cozy with this, before we sentimentalize what Jesus is telling them, let's think ahead a bit. Uh, let's remember the cross. Let's remember the likely fate of anyone claiming to be a disciple of Jesus, at least during those early days and the events of Good Friday and beyond. Let's remember Peter denying his discipleship three times. Let's remember the disciples huddled together in Jerusalem, hiding for fear of the religious authorities. This was not a bunch that, at least at the beginning, really wanted to be known as disciples of Jesus, at least not for those first few days after this last meal together. Only a handful of them went with him to the garden, and they failed. They fell asleep. A smaller number attended the crucifixion, and they stayed silent. Only three of them, women, were stout-hearted enough to make their way to the tomb on their own initiative. It was a scary, chaotic, confusing, troubling few days, days of uncertainty, 
days when the last thing they wanted to do was proclaim their allegiance to Jesus, if for no other reason than the one in whom they'd placed their trust was now dead. All of that to say that what Jesus was calling them to do, to love each other as a sign of their allegiance to him, was no easy thing. It was no small matter. It would put them at risk. It would stretch them when they were already stretched. It was the original second mile, this invitation to keep following the way of Christ when Christ himself had been removed from the path. Don't stop now, little children. Keep on walking. Keep on doing what I told you to do, what I showed you to do. Love one another. And so make your allegiance known. And so reveal your best selves to the world. Love each other as I loved you. That is, suffer for each other. Serve each other. Wash each other's feet. Put each other's needs before your own. And if need be, die for the sake of your friends. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And again, that haunting melody from the 1970s makes sense. Jesus has bidden his disciples to come and die, to give themselves up for each other. Hardly the time for whistling a jaunty tune. Instead, there's a weight to their song, an awareness of the courage needed to do this one thing, to love each other, to live in the unity provided us in Christ, and to keep on walking and working despite all the times we fall away, all the times we fall short. We are one in the Spirit. We are one in the Lord. We are one in the Spirit. We are one in the Lord. And we pray that all unity may one day be restored. And they'll know we are Christians by our love. By our love, yes, they'll know we are Christians. The call to love each other is no less daunting today. In the years since this scene from John's Gospel occurred, we Christians have learned well how to separate, to label ourselves and others, to determine who is an insider and who is an outsider, to establish boundaries and walls and doctrines and confessions that serve to define us as a people, but also serve to separate us from others, so that the unity that ought to be ours in Christ is instead something we wish were so. We are one in the Spirit, we proclaim. We are one in the Lord, we proclaim. But we look around and we realize just how splintered, how guarded, how defended, how broken we are. And so all we can do is pray that somehow Christ will restore us, that Christ will heal us, and that someday out there in the future that unity will be more than something we imagine to be so, but will instead be what we inhabit, the truth of our being, the fully redeemed body of Christ. I think we get a taste of that unity, a glimpse of that unity, that redeemed and whole body of Christ as we learn to love one another as Christ loved us. But that's no easy thing, is it? Well, some folks it is. I mean, folks like us, right? Folks who look like us and act like us and worship like us and believe like us or have similar values to our own. People who, like us, understand the proper balance between dependence and independence, who know where the lines are for proper conduct, who's Needs are not more than we or they can bear. People whose lifestyles complement our own. The truth is, of course, that there are times when it's not even all that easy to love folks just like us. But we can muster up the necessary energy and find the proper motivation to do that when push comes to shove. And, well, surely that should be enough. But it's not. Not really. Because, as the disciples soon discovered, the love they shared 
would carry them beyond their comfort of their own small circle. It would insist that they extended to others beyond themselves. And so we have that amazing scene from the book of Acts in which Peter is finally convinced that everything he'd learned from the scriptures about who God loves and who God claims and who is beyond God's love and who is beyond God's claim was no longer true. The old rules no longer applied. Maybe they never did, but that's another story. For Peter, for Peter, that sheet coming down from heaven changed everything. God loves the Gentiles and wants to save them, so go and explain that to your brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. And he did. And an even more amazing thing happened. His brothers and sisters believed him. Not that everything was now one great big hug fest. Um, Jewish believers and Gentile believers would continue to rub against each other for years to come. Still, in that opening move, Peter and his comrades learned something about what it means to truly love one another as Christ loved them. It means sometimes moving beyond what is comfortable and then on out past what is believed to be theologically or biblically acceptable to some altogether new place where the Spirit is at work. And so it is with us. The call to one another, love one another, remains a hard calling. As I said, we've become very adept at wall building, at declaring clean and unclean, at binding and loosing, and perhaps much of that has been and still is necessary. Boundary keeping is a good thing, right? Being clear about convictions and belief is, is necessary for the stability and viability of any community. Tending to the needs of its members is also necessary, as is holding one another accountable for growing ever more faithful. And yet there remains this call to love, and if we're honest, we don't always know what that means. And that's especially so, I think, when the call to love seems to conflict with the need for proper doctrine or for proper boundaries or for proper ways of being church together. Now, I'd like to think that, like Peter, we surrender in the end to the persistent nagging of the Holy Spirit and so love beyond where we think we ought to, welcoming whoever the Spirit brings our way and trusting that same Spirit to fill them and begin the same process of redemption that has already begun in us. I'd like to think that we'd have the courage or the will or the trust to let go of our hold on the boundaries and open our hands and hearts in full welcome, trusting the Holy Spirit to lead us and those the Spirit brings to, to us toward full communion, toward full healing, toward something more closely resembling that unity that we believe is already there in the Spirit of Christ. But it won't be easy. It won't be easy. Each of us, I suspect, has our own list of those folks we'd feel comfortable stretching a bit to include and those for whom stretching would be, quite honestly, too much for us. People for whom the stretch required is simply unacceptable. I expect, suspect we all have those folks we would readily welcome, and we all have those folks whose presence would make us uncomfortable, whose presence would be disruptive, whose participation in the life of the congregation would maybe make it feel unwelcoming to us. This loving one another thing is really not easy at all. Nevertheless, I think the place to learn how to do this, how to love others as Christ loves us, is right here in the congregation. Here is where we practice loving one another. Here is where we try to love one another right now. Here is where we keep on trying to love one another, and where we try again, and where we try again. Here is where there should be sufficient generosity and grace to allow us to try and to fail, to practice loving one another until we get it right. 
And if we're truly blessed, if we're truly blessed, the Spirit will keep on drawing other folks to us, folks whom we may not immediately recognize as followers of Jesus, or folks whom we probably never would have considered to be followers of Jesus, or folks who follow Jesus in ways in which, which seem alien or theologically unsound or in some other way not what we've grown accustomed to. And so give us new friends to play with, new sisters and brothers with whom to learn to live and to love one another. And if we're truly, truly learning our lessons well, we may even let the Spirit take us by the hand and go out there somewhere and invite others to come join us as we practice learning how to love. And again, the whole thing repeats itself with new folks bringing their stories and looking to find a place in our community, and so it becomes their community, and so an opportunity for all of us to try to love one another right now. The cycle keeps repeating, I believe, in congregations which are faithful in doing their lessons and loving others. And in fact, it, it seems to me, it's only in such faithful practice that a congregation's viability is assured. Seems like an awful lot of work, doesn't it? Now the tune seems not so much mournful as tired and slow, a trudging through the desert song. We are one in the Spirit. We are one in the Lord. We are one in the Spirit. We are one in the Lord. And we pray that all unity may one day be restored. And they'll know we are Christians by our love. By our love, yes, they'll know we are Christians by our love. It's the kind of song laborers sing. We can almost hear the spikes being pounded into the ground as the track is being laid, a railroad building song, a song to accompany people on their slow walk from death to life, from the cross to resurrection, from the formation of a people to the consummation of their salvation. We are one in the Spirit. We are one in the Lord. We are one in the Spirit, we are one in the Lord. And we pray that all unity may one day be restored. And they'll know we are Christians by our love, by our love. Yes, they'll know we are Christians by our love. And one day unity will be restored. One day our salvation will be complete. One day we will live where God lives, in a place where death has been denied entrance and where every tear has been wiped away. A place where God lives, a place whose light comes from Christ, a place whose gates are never shut. Christ has promised us that it will be so. From first to last, from alpha to omega, from beginning to end, the promise has been made and will be fulfilled. All unity will one day be restored. And we... Having learned our lessons in love, we will be fully prepared to enter into that perfect place, that perfect future, that perfect unity. All the energy, all the sacrifice, all the work, all the stretching beyond our comfort, all our heedless and headlong following after the Spirit's prompting, all of that will be proven worthwhile. All of it will be proven necessary. And all of it will be proven to have been a gift from Christ's Spirit to us, Christ's people, a gift whose purpose was both to make God's plan, redemption of the world come to pass and our own redemption to boot. A gift whose purpose was to help us to become a people fit to live forever with God in that place of all light where we will finally, finally be revealed for who we really are.
Christians. And so, dear sisters and brothers, we hear this hard call to love one another, to proclaim our unity even in the midst of separation, to learn how to love one another as Christ loves us, to slowly, slowly, and with the Spirit's help, become precisely who we were always meant to be, one in Christ, a people whose primary and most recognizable characteristic is that we love one another right now. We are one in the Spirit, we are one in the Lord, we are one in the Spirit, we are one in the Lord, and we pray that all unity may one day be restored, and they'll know we are Christians by our love, by our love, yes, they'll know we are Christians by our love. May God make it so. Amen.